Hi there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hello there, welcome to episode 103 of 1% Better, and this one we touch on, or maybe more than touch on, dive into the areas of precision medicine, and it's with a, a gentleman that you may not have heard of yet, but I'm sure you will in the near future. His name is Joe Bakhti. And we'll talk a little bit about Joe in a minute. I'm challenging myself in this intro to not only one, keep it relatively short, which I'm going to fail at, two, to do it all in one take without any edits. I'm recording it on video as well because I'll be putting a video of this episode out with Joe. So let's see how we get on. So the first four episodes of season three are out. First four interviews, uh, we touched on football management with Neil Fenn and leadership. Uh, we talked with Sheila Mann and Sheila about communes, leadership values. We touched on relationships with Susan Winter. And then last week, one on financial management and how to be maybe a little bit better at how you manage your finances with Paddy Delaney. And uh, that one has got some good feedback. I um, took a lot out of it myself, as I say, from nearly every episode. I try to implement or take something out that I will put into practice. The one thing that stood out with Paddy's episode, or one of the things, he mentioned in 1929, since 1929, 11% per year growth on average with investments or with the stock exchange, I think it might have been. And uh, while there's ups and downs, it's and nearly every year things go down and come back up over that period of time year on year 11 percent growth and maybe somebody can write in and say that's not true i'm taking paddy's word for it but it certainly got me thinking to you know when i'm investing to keep it in for the longer haul but again going back to paddy's one of his first comments was what is your goal do you know what the purpose of your savings uh, is for so that always helps and he talks a lot about purpose and really having smart investments so check it out if you haven't tangible results there there's a disclaimer in the show notes just to say it is a financial advice and some useful tips but uh, i don't think you can come back after me or paddy uh, if it doesn't work out the frequency of releases i'm trying to release maybe podcasts more frequently over the coming weeks it's um it's difficult i go and tend to record bunches and then release a few so some of the folks i've interviewed probably in january and february are wondering where their episode is it'll come but um trying to edit more in batch and release more so hopefully over the next few weeks get maybe two out a week for a period of time and catch up uh we'll see definitely plan to do some live stream shows of a few guests lined up it's just a matter of locking it all in and putting it out so exciting times ahead as uh, as always and this one is definitely an exciting episode exciting in that it talks about how joe and his company quant gene are focusing in on really really early detection of cancer using precision medicine which includes artificial intelligence machine learning data big data analytics to detect cancer way way earlier than it is done today Joe's company Quant Gene has been up and running for a few years. I'm just going to read a little. He's a pioneer in this area. His utilization of big data combined with advanced DNA analysis detects dangerous diseases with unprecedented accuracy before symptoms even occur. And that's me reading it, but from the episode, 
during it, I went for long spells without having to say a word because of the, the detail in which Joe was sharing his story, but also sharing his focus in on how to identify early stage cancer, the, the like of which I had never heard explained in such detail before. All the way through, what was going on in my head was this guy is a genius. He is a polymath. He reminds me of Elon Musk. He tends to mention Elon Musk a few times. And we talk about not only the company, but emotional intelligence in general and how education should potentially change into the future, how we can maybe study folks like Elon Musk, how they make decisions, how they approach challenges and problems and then try and solve them and and use that model to create maybe training camps or schools for for folks that can utilize some of those techniques, then apply some of that to solve problems on a wider scale. A fascinating guy. I absolutely am convinced if this product that they're releasing to detect cancer really, really early lifts off later this year they're in clinical trials but it should be coming out later in the year he is going to be a very much household name or globally known so i'm probably lucky from the perspective of getting in early and having a chat with him to understand his thought process his ability to think critically he talks about critical thinking and the ladder of improbability which he will go into detail on in the show yeah again look it was it was a fascinating one i hope you enjoy it if you do i'd love you to share it out with your own circle with your own network last season the episode that was listened to most was in the space of medicine as well psychobiotics from ted dynan ucc professor i'm excited about this one because i think it's tapping into something we're all concerned about cancer impacts every single one of us in some way shape or form and anything that we can get that could help identify it way earlier and ultimately defeat it is more than a good thing enjoy it if you do subscribe to the show help me rank that up further so other folks can hear it check out it on the the website lots of good stuff there and i think i'm there and i've done it all in one take uh there we go not so bad i'll hand it over to joe bakti enjoy the episode guys and have a great weekend a great week ahead good luck so we started the company um, in 2014. Technically, we incorporated in 2015. There's always a little uh, starting uh, runway. And what we do is we develop the first uh, kind of multi-cancer detection test, blood-based. So uh, we are working on a product that allows us to detect multiple cancers, probably up to 12 different cancers, uh, early stage in the blood. And the reason we can do that uh, is that there's a lot of underlying technology breakthroughs that came into play uh, over the last five years. Uh, next generation sequencing got to a very important point price-wise and accuracy-wise. There are some more chemistry innovations that allow us to have error reduction. I can go into all these things later. Um, there's a lot of machine learning breakthroughs, and there's also a general sense in the financial community that this is happening. And all these things came together. And then at the center, I was basically a, a newcomer to the field to some extent mm. um, because I was an, I'm an economist. I was in quantitative finance before, did some startups, was in mergers and acquisitions. So I didn't have a typical medical track record, but my family is all, you know, everyone is a doctor or a scientist and I grew up in a lab more or less. So I know that stuff kind of intuitively, mm. uh, which is an interesting thing. Um, how this actually shapes your 
view. I was never afraid of reading some biology papers or microbiology or whatever, um, and found it always pretty natural. And yeah, I had this basic breakthrough idea in 2014 when I was working with someone else on on cancer detection, just helping out on the on the quantitative side um, about genomics, and had this idea. And I can go into the idea if you want. Uh, it's a little geeky, but it's about pattern recognition. It's about genomics, and you know, to make it very simple, I had the idea that there is a specific way of looking at DNA in the blood, um, that if you do it in a very different way than people did it back then, using some machine learning and pattern recognition before you do it, so you're much more focused on what you look for, you could massively increase the, the precision um, with that you look at all these, you know, millions or billions of DNA fragments in the blood. And yeah, that was first a theory. And I was working on something else at that time, but it was so compelling that I started doing this as a side thing called some people up at UC Berkeley um, that we know some, uh, through some uh, networks and a friend at Sloan Kettering and I told them my idea, which was a total outsider idea. So I thought maybe I'm just crazy. Let's check with these guys. And then they all said, that's actually very interesting, that idea. And they have never heard it before, but it makes total sense. And so basically, I, I started working on Quanxian totally as a side project first in 2014 and 15. And then very rapidly, it turned into this thing where, you know, one, it's basically this ladder of improbabilities, right? So at every step, you think this can't really be, it's just a great idea. But I'm mm. sure if I check it, the next expert I talk to is going to say, that's just stupid. You overlooked something. But the opposite happened. Every time I spoke to someone, it's like, wow, that's pretty cool. Wow. Should work. And so I climbed up this ladder and every, every step where I saw, wait, again, that should work and that should work and that should work. And then suddenly it dawned on me, maybe the whole thing works, which I did not expect at that time. <laughs> and so, so I, because it seemed un, improbable to me that you can just have an idea and suddenly you detect cancer early stage in the blood, which basi basically defeats cancer if you do it right. Wow. It seemed like improbable that you can't just stumble upon that. But you know, I dug deeper and deeper and deeper, and then suddenly we had a company. I raised some angel money and did a little mini clinical trial with my friend uh, Dr. Hagen, who's very you know well connected in the in the medical community, one of the leading people in robotic surgery in the world, and um, yeah, then this worked out perfectly. And then I thought maybe we should raise more money, and then we raised a little bit more money, uh, and now yeah, we are at Series A and well funded and moved to Santa Monica, have a commercial lab in Irvine, have a very big clinical trial going on. And now it's a very real thing. So yeah, it's kind of a kind of a crazy story. And yeah, I'm happy to chat more about it yeah well but, like so a lot of questions have come up for me kind of when you were talking through that there um you know that way sometimes i might have an idea i think is brilliant and as soon as i go online it's it's already gone and you know somebody else has done it and i think recently i came up with an idea for doing kind of a the similar business model for uber but for for gyms for for fitness centers but that's happening now as well so that's that's not going to work out for me but when you come up with the idea, I suppose, first of all, how how did it even form? Where did it come from? You said you were working on something else. What, what kind of put it into your mind? So, yeah, I think the takeaway is for me, because I had to deal with startups a lot before, but more from an outside or investor perspective. And I think 
the difference is if you have a more if you have an idea everyone can have based on what goes into the idea then it, you're in a bad position so if you just have the idea oh well, let's detect cancer that's a bad idea because you're not the first one but this idea was was much more specific so if you have an idea about a specific data set and the data set is very big and no one has it and you acquire it and then and then you dig deeper and then it works then it's very unlikely anyone else can have that specific idea so i was working with my brother he was um, he's a doctor and engineer, and he worked on a magnetic cell separation device. So that allows you to negatively select cells out of blood samples. And what negative selection means is you can basically select the white blood cells out of that sample. Um, and so that means any cell that's not a white blood cell that is a bigger cell, not red blood cells, but bigger cells with DNA in it, uh, remain in the sample. So that's called negative selection because you don't have you're not supposed to have any cells in the blood that are not white blood cells that have dna so it's mostly bacteria or it could be tumor cells so my idea was back then oh let's use it for cancer detection because if you have circulating tumor cells because a tumor has shed a cell you know into the bloodstream which is bad by the way um then they circulate and if you take blood samples and can remove all the white blood cells you have something left that is potentially a tumor cell but you don't know and so basically I, you know, we, we thought about ways of identifying the remaining cells because it's non-trivial, right? You have to do it somehow. You have to do something with the cells to determine what it is. And you can do a protein base based on the membrane and, you know, some, some surface traits, but that's very unreliable for many reasons. And my idea was, well, the most reliable thing is sequence them, like look at the DNA because we know that cancer cells cannot have the same DNA. They must have damage, they must have mutations, otherwise they're not cancer cells. And um, at least with a very high degree of certainty, maybe in theory you could have a cancer cell that maybe does not have somatic mutations, but I think that's uh, highly speculative and it's very likely they all have somatic mutations. So basically then the question is, okay, let's assume you can sequence the cell and see the DNA. How would you know if it's a cancer mutation or not? Because you have 3.3 billion nucleotides on a DNA and you can have many mutations on that DNA and nearly none of them is a tumor mutation just statistically, right? So tumor mutations need to be very specific. And so I thought that can't be too hard and started thinking about, well, there must be known tumor mutations and we looked into that, and yes, there are many that are known, but the problem is a different problem. You know, it's not about if you find a mutation, then you can check if it's a cancer mutation. The question is more, if you have 100 cancer cells from 100 different tumors, and you look at any specific mutation, tumor mutation, at how many do you have to look at in order to make sure you would capture all 100 different tumor cells? Right, and none of none of them escapes because if you look at ten mutations and all ten do not exist in one tumor, but a number eleven exists, and you don't look at eleven, you're missing this tumor. Right, it's it's very simple. It's like I don't know, looking for terrorists, and you know, terrorists wear uh, headphones and gray sweaters, for example. <laughs> so, but but then you know, oh, there's another type of terrorist that doesn't wear them, but has no hair or something. So you have three traits. If you look for two traits, you're missing. You could potentially miss this type. And in cancer, this is much more complicated because you have millions of mutations. And so that sucked me into that rabbit hole. And I thought like, well, how could we, 
you know, what do we have to look for in order to tell with certainty if a cell is a tumor cell or not? And that opened this whole thing because then I started talking to some friends at Stanford and in, in Germany, some universities who are in cancer research. And I never got a good answer from anyone. Everyone said like, well, that's all very difficult questions because you have millions of mutations, billions of nucleotides on each individual DNA. No one knows anything. You know, I mean, of course we know something, but it's a vast space and who knows? And it's all very new, this data uh, based perspective. And only in 2009 did the world even start to investigate on a systematic level all the cancer mutations by collecting these huge data sets. But they just started in 2009, the US government, and then the European governments jumped in to build these databases, but they're super new. And just a few geeks use them and no one knows what the data format looks like. So then it dawned on me that this is crazy. Like we, I mean, if even our experts who are some of the world leading people in systems biology and, you know, cancer, if they don't have an answer and they are very smart, so they know exactly what they know and what they don't know. And told me, no, listen, we don't know. Like no one knows right now. We know some things, but no one has a comprehensive understanding of all the cancer mutations because who knows? So I realized, well, if we would actually, I mean, we are clearly at the cutting edge here in terms of asking the right questions and these data sets become available right now. So maybe we just jump ahead and collect these data sets and then try to make a systematic analysis of these data sets um, with that question in mind. Wow. So I just, yeah, so we just, I uh, just, you know, figured out in my network, is there anyone who understands these data sets who can get them for me and then some do some magic with it on the algorithmic side. And that basically was my idea. Like the idea was get this data set. Can we get it? Okay, we can get it. Um, and then ask certain questions algorithmically, like, you know, can we systematically screen all these different cancer patients with the entire DNA that was sequenced in the tumor tissue? And can we identify patterns of mutations? And then can we minimize these patterns without losing any of these patients in the data set? And then see what happens and then figure out, you know, can we actually reduce the number of mutations we look at? And if we can do that, then we could devise a totally new method that's much more focused and much, much more effective. Good Lord. I'm, I don't think I've spoken less in, in the start of a, a podcast before, just trying to take in all of that information. And hopefully people that listen probably get it even better than, than I did. What, what I'm what I'm thinking as you're as you're talking through it, though, and looking at your, your background, you have a master's in economics and psychology. You've startups in finance. You're obviously heavy on innovation and, and your background with your family in, in medicine. Like, is is the word is it a polymath? It seems like you have intense ability to go deep in all of these areas. Like, has that always been your approach to problems? Do you see them and then just just do they consume you? Yes. So I don't know why, but when I was nineteen, I think you know, right after high school, I was always pretty broadly interested in things. So I. In high school, I took like a very broad set of subjects. I had like ancient Greek was one of my majors and I loved that stuff, like philosophy and this whole idea from mythos to logos, like how humanity evolved from mystical thinking into logical thinking and how difficult that is. And that many people still didn't make this transition or many cultures. And it's very hard to explain what it actually means, but that's kind of a guiding principle. Once you really get it, that 
oh, we can logically investigate the world and it's about critical thinking, you know, you don't have to be, you know, many people say, if I'm not an expert, I can't deal with it. Like who knows it's medicine or who knows it's rockets. I can't deal with rockets. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's not really true. Everyone can deal with everything. You just have to know what you know and what you don't know. Right. So, I mean, you have to, you, you can get information, you can ask experts and then critically question these experts, especially if you have multiple of them and form your own opinion that can be very sharp if it's first principle based, right? So you can quickly get to very to high levels of certainty about any subject. Um, as long as you follow certain rules, right? You can, you can't be certain if you cannot be certain, then you're just dumb like making mistakes, but at a certain point you can connect some dots and say, well, I'm, I don't know most of the things, but based on the information I have, I can be absolutely certain in my example. Well, if there's a data set and there are mutations and we figure out the smallest pattern, we can detect cancer. That's just absolutely certain. I'm not saying we can, I'm saying if we had the data set and figure that out and it's, you know, a certain critical size, we can absolutely do it. So, I think I was very early on fascinated by the idea that you can solve any problem if you just had the right knowledge. So all you have to do is figure out how you generate the right knowledge. So I know that sounds like maybe confusing, but it's, no. I don't know. I have this, this conviction that you can do that. So I, that always drove me at the certain faith that you can do it. Okay. So, so I'm fascinated about the difference between IQ and EQ, right? So people that have, a lot of time a very high iq may not have high eq they say eq can be developed much more than iq can be is pretty set at a young age um i would imagine based on what you're talking about there's quite a an overlap between the two in your in your world and if you know if there's certain things you're you're able to solve and then others you you look at experts to help you what what, what kind of comes up for you when i kind of talk about that I think that's a great question, uh, whatever EQ exactly is. But Emotional I think intelligence, I get, yeah. You know that, obviously. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's more, maybe it's an, it's an, it's another IQ. It's like the intuition quotient or something, right? So, like, a, so what I see, because we talk a lot now that we are a little bigger and, you know, everyone takes it more seriously, we talk a lot to Wall Street analysts um, or analysts at very sophisticated biotech funds. And it's not just in our case, I think it's always also applicable to other cool companies like Tesla and their analysts and everything. Um, so what I see is people with very high IQ, um, and these people have very high IQ, I mean, they're very smart people, right? And they have a lot of knowledge and a lot of intelligence. And often they miss something that you could call EQ, right? They miss the big picture, you know, just... The common um, sense in some ways, I would say. Yeah, the common sense, right? So... And I think it's one of the biggest challenges in innovation to maintain both levels. And I'm, I'm not saying that I'm great at that. I'm just saying I take it very seriously to kind of stay stupid to some extent. You know, I, I always, and I think it's very difficult if you, because it's, it's contradicting. The more you want to be smart and understand everything and go into the details and understand the logic behind it and try to figure out that key lever that changes it the more you get sucked into very deep details, 
So I, and in due diligence, when you look at a company and try to figure out if a startup is smart and you don't have much time, you have to jump into a totally new sector, which I had to do before. Um, my favorite paradigm is like the T paradigm, like a T, T. I mean, you go very broad, very quickly, and then you take one thing and go super deep. So basically, if you look at a car factory or someone who wants to sell his car company, you look, ask them all the questions of what's your market, what's your IP, you know, how do you build these cars, why do you think you're better, what's the cars, and then you say, well, take me to a plant, manufacturing plant, and then you go all the way down and you look at the screws and you talk to one worker and ask them, how is it today, you know, what do you do here? And most people never do that. They stay on the, on the horizontal level because it's easy. And I think that's also not just for due diligence, it's also the way you have to approach complex problems. You have to go super deep and find some really theoretically important key lever, but then you have to jump back out and say like, what are we actually doing here? For example, in cancer detection, many of these smart analysts, they question if there is, you know, how we tackle the market. Like, so how do you get this thing out? There are so many regulatory issues. And the how to convince oncologists to buy a new test is totally unknown. Yeah, you have clinical studies, but you know, there are so many obstacles. And sometimes I just have to take a step back and say like, dudes, if you have a universal cancer detection test, it is clinically shown to save 80%, you know, decrease cancer mortality by 80% across the board. Do you really think that the FDA is going to say, no, 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 we, we make it illegal like forever. It's like, it's just nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. But smart people often get sucked into this very digital thinking. That you can't just say, well, the FDA cannot just stand in the way of fundamental innovation and they, because they don't and they don't even want to. But they think on higher resolution. Like, But who do you know the FDA has? Did you speak to this person? Do you have evidence that he will be fine with your regulatory pathway and all these things? And I think it's very important in innovation to say like, okay, these are problems and we have to solve them, but you have to understand these are not fundamental first principle problems. They are not going to just not allow the test. It's just a question of back and forth and figuring it out. That's how I look at, and I think that has something to do with IQ versus EQ. Sometimes you have to say it's a very complicated problem, but it's not an important problem because fundamentally can be solved. Whereas another problem might fundamentally not be solved, right? So... Mm when you were talking through that kind of process in your in your mind this was and what came up for me there was system one and system two thinking and that's the the the, the book thinking fast and small i think that's kahneman and he's probably a professor of economics as well i, I think would that be his background so, yeah. did have you read that book i i haven't read that book but i have read other stuff from Kahneman. I think it's pretty smart stuff normally what he writes. So this is probably also smart, but I haven't read the book. Yeah, it's just just what struck me there was that your brain so say you're looking at the T level and, and, and across the horizontal they're they're looking for maybe the, the obvious yeses or no's and, and answers, but when they go deeper they're they're challenging them their own school of thought to, to probably go in into a bit more depth on it and it's the, the part of your brain that's kind of lazy versus the part that feels uncomfortable when you go deeper because it's it's unknown and it's it's a bit more challenging to figure it out um that's just yeah. what triggered and you mentioned intuition as well what's your what's your take on intuition well i kind of have my own little theoretic model about it 
that can be totally wrong, but I think that's how I think about it. I mean, basically, I think the brain is just a giant, very complicated processor, right? So we take in certain things and logics and have our rational thinking and understand certain building blocks. And then they're in our conscious mind, right? If we think about something, we kind of bring it up from the subconscious into the conscious. The conscious is like a certain sharp, like processing memory, kind of like RAM. And you have to upload stuff into the RAM to think about something, right? So because you know how it is, you can think about something and suddenly it's in your main memory, in your processing memory, but it's always stored somewhere else. And then you think about it, but it's you have a very sharp but very narrow focus when you think about a problem. And once you stop thinking about it, I think what happens is it just goes into your subconscious or intuitive processing uh, area. And what that thing does is it processes things on a much lower resolution, but on a much broader, faster level. Right. So it's, it's just a it's a hyper fast, hyper broad logical thinking. I think that's what intuition is, because intuition is totally logical, but on a on a lower resolution and less conscious. And that's why the intuition, that's if you think a lot about things, one piece after another, you're building these little building blocks. And then once you stop thinking about them, they they go down, right, in the consciousness level, and then they're down here. And then what your intuition does is it uses all these little building blocks, but all in parallel and much faster. So it makes more mistakes maybe on a, on a granular level, but it makes less mistakes on a big picture level because it takes everything into consideration at once. But these little building blocks you built before, like through your experience and or your, through your thinking. So the more you think about it, the better your intuition becomes. And there are actually some super exciting examples from science, how this happened. Like KQ Lee, for example, the guy who invented the benzoyl structure of the benzoyl molecule, um, which is round, right? It's like these C's, but they're in a circle. So it's a circular molecule. And People back, he uh, was a German guy, and back in, in the 1800s, they tried to figure out the structure of the benzoyl molecule because they knew how many C's are in there and how many H's and O's, hydrogens and oxygens, but they couldn't figure out how to put it together. No one could figure out the structure because they all thought in linear terms, like how do we do it this way or this way, and they couldn't ever figure it out. So he thought about this a whole bunch, and then there's a story from himself that he it came to him when he was half asleep, dozing off in an overland ride in a carriage. Mm -hmm. so he was like dreaming, half dreaming. Mm -hmm. And then he saw a snake in his dream. And the snake was like crawling around and couldn't get anywhere. And then suddenly the snake bit its own tail. So it formed a circle. Right. And he woke up and was like, oh my God, it's a circle. And I think that's a great example. Like the intuition is very... It's not very granular, of course, it's not a snake, it's benzoyl, but the intuition doesn't care. It's like, ah, this problem, and the intuition can play around with it much faster and blur more lines and then find a new solution that is much more creative, much broader, and then you can run with it. Hmm. And what role would you think experience has in intuition, your previous past experience? Well, I think the intuition, all it does is it takes your building, your logical building blocks. That's how I call them. Like A leads to B. Like a snake is you know, straight, but it can bite its tail or something like that, right? So, or they are molecules or whatever. And there are two sources for that, for these little logical building blocks in our brain. One is experience and one is thinking. 
you can generate them both way. Of course, you need some experience to do some thinking, but I think everyone can vastly improve their knowledge by thinking based on any given set of experiences or the other way around. Anyone can improve their knowledge through experiences based on every, any given level of thinking. So ideally, you have a lot of experiences and do a lot of thinking. Hmm. No, very, very interesting. I know we're kind of going in different directions on this. So so come back to maybe Quant Gene and I suppose maybe your, your motivations for going in this direction. What is driving you, maybe even tying into your own purpose, your own values? What What is uh, pushing you in that direction? I think it's two things. The number one thing is, of course, medicine. I believe that I was always unhappy with medicine for some reason, maybe because I was surrounded by doctors my whole life and I like them. I appreciate them. Um, but I'm also like very health conscious. I like my health. I love humans and I don't like when they suffer and die. I think it's just appalling the whole thing. And, and I think we just live way below our potential. In medicine, I think we are way, way too conservative. It's still a, the initial modern medicine approach is like over, it's like 150 years old, and we still live by these paradigms while technology is exploding all around us. So that's my first motivation. I think it's just ridiculous, like the speed of innovation in medicine, not in a good way. We could like, we, we could make much more dramatic advances, but you know, we have to understand how. And that's why I'm pretty passionate about medical progress. And the second thing is, it goes a little bit beyond medical. I just think in general, I have this little obsession about, you know, the pioneers and the progress potential. And that I think we, we as a society just do a lot of things wrong. We do a lot of things right, but also, again, we live massively below our potential by ignoring the fact that you know, again and again and again, we see some very few pioneers, as I call them, like from Bill Gates to Steve Jobs to Elon Musk to do crazy things like disrupt entire industries single-handedly with a small team and brings everything like you know massive change. And everyone's like, oh, they're great heroes. And I, I have a reverse perspective. I think these are the normal people. And what the hell is everyone else doing? Right. So you can say, oh, they are amazing heroes. I say like, well, and to some extent, what they do is just normal. What the impulse of most children actually is like, oh, there's a problem. What can I do? about? It? Oh, now it's solved. And I think we have lost or we never found that innocent, disruptive approach to the world that we say, well, if you don't like something, why don't you just rally up some folks and use your brain and solve the problem? And we can do this on a trivial level or on easy areas but we can also use uh, do it in very you know with nuclear fusion or space travel and all these things so in a way yeah this just do it and apply some certain principles of innovation also you know our science should study way more elon musk is a great example like why does no one study him why does no one ask like how does this work why did nasa fail and he doesn't why does boeing fail and he doesn't why do all the car companies fail and he doesn't? We can't just say, oh, he's a magical creature. He's not. He's just a dude who thinks in a certain way. Why don't we decipher it and start training our kids in college to think the same way? It's not rocket science, no pun intended. It's like, you know, just say, okay, it's normal. He does great things. Let's study why he does it. 
how he thinks and train more people to do it and then we have more elon musks mm. so like uh, that was my next question i suppose before you kind of maybe answered it but do you feel that the the way kids are educated from a very young age is creating like boundaries in in how they think and that the model needs to be massively changed yes you guessed it <laughs> no it's i think so and i think this education debate is also terrible because everyone debates something oh we need more ipads or we need more this or that or we you know whatever or we need more stem education and i i feel it's so low level the whole discussion it's like no what we need is take a step back and take a fundamental approach to education what is the purpose of the entire exercise like no one even asked that question right what is the purpose of education how was our current education system created and what was the purpose back then in prussia or like uh, napoleonic like france well it was that they want to educate the peasants to be able to read because they knew it's a little better because we have manufacturing coming up. They need to work in these factories. And if they think a little bit better, then they can be a little bit more productive. Right. And that was great in 1850, but it's insufficient today. And if you take a step back, you know, and, and a lot of discussions similar to medicine, by the way, we often focus on the weakest in society, which I think is great. You have to focus. I mean, you have to help everyone. But you should never forget that a society is never driven by the weakest. It's driven by the strongest. So in a way, we have to think way more also about our strongest, the best and brightest. Like, what is their purpose? And how do we educate them? Not just no child left behind. What do we do with the top 10%? And what do, could they do? And how do we fail them? Because if we fail them, we fail everyone. And so I think the education debate should be much more, what's the purpose of the exercise? What should Harvard, Stanford, Berkeley, all these places actually do? And I think the answer is very simple. They should create more Elon Musks. They should focus all these great minds in all these different fields to really hammer home, uh, you know, in some kind of pioneer training camps, guys, solve the problems. You know, and, and it's, it's also not too hard how you would restructure education to do that. You would basically say, instead of just passively sitting there and being passive, receptacles of information you know go out and try to solve a problem you know your class should be build a fusion reactor or build a rocket ship yeah. or build cars and yeah. that you just get it done yeah it's funny because I, i've often thought that we have it the, the wrong way around in that you, you in ireland you go to school to 17 and you're you're learning by rote and you just do kind of a memory exam and then you go to university where you try to have creative thinking and and have it you know you can explore where you're where but but by that time you're already ingrained in a certain way and it's it's difficult so if you were to almost do it the other way around and have that continual um openness from a from a young age with some sort of guardrails i guess just to, to kind of keep people in some sort of structure but but giving them the freedom but but yeah like so what you mentioned is kind of having almost like a an environment a commune where they're like a proof of concept group that would follow elon musk's way of thinking and and see what they come out with obviously that would be a long study because it could take them 15 or 20 years to come to the point where these ideas are coming but i'm sure 
in some parts of the world they're they're doing it differently and are they getting those results i don't know if you have any knowledge or insights to that well i think of course in california there are some people trying some things so there's the draper university for superheroes for example uh, here in silicon valley but I mean, everyone, I, it's great that people try things. Elon Musk actually founded a school for his kids, right? So they go to his private school. Um, there are startup accelerators like Y Combinator, um, which I think are interesting. And you had New York Times articles, you know, already saying, is that the Harvard of the future and things like that. And I think startup accelerators, especially, are kind of precursors of these future universities. Um, I'm very university focused here because I think university and college is the easiest starting point because, because I'm an economist. Once you start about K-12 and elementary school, the further you go away from the point where you actually get returns, the exponentially harder it becomes to design these programs, which doesn't mean we shouldn't do it now. I'm just thinking me as a private individual, if I think about funding own, my own schools, I would start with universities because it's most likely you get a return, right? You take the best and brightest now from Harvard grad school, and then you can turn them into pioneers much more quickly than a than a kindergarten uh, level person because that person needs to grow up a little more. So I'm focusing on that, and I think startup accelerators, especially by Combinator, is a great example where you create kind of a pressure cooker of innovation, right? I've been actually in there, so it's it's interesting. Um, you have this pressure cooker thing, and you have 300 other people and they're all hyper motivated you have only three months to get it done there's a huge pressure or urgency and you have to build a company and it works as we know so they're pretty successful again it's like amazing that no one studies that like i mean they paid over 100 billion dollars in in value so clearly it's also very profitable um so what's the problem like you know you could study them you could study elon you can study other innovators and I also think like what we are talking about is so fundamentally important. It's the central civilizational technology is education that we can't expect some dude like me or Elon or Paul Graham or whoever just come up and build a school. It's, it's an endeavor. We have to engage into this journey of figuring it out. And that's why I'm always grateful for anyone who does something and it doesn't matter if they succeed or not. They gather more information uh, and, and you can, you know, we have the lean startup of Eric Ries. So we have more and more knowledge pieces together. It's like, oh yeah, you have to pivot. You have a runway. You have a, the engineering cycle, as I call it. So we have all these little things we know, iterative innovation, trial and error, uh, critical thinking. You just have to continue pushing that into some kind of program and test it with real people. And the downside is very limited. You're not going to hurt them. I mean, they're definitely getting smarter doing it. Uh, and at some point, someone will solve the problem and then you can take in a hundred you know talented young people and suddenly have 50 Elon Musk I'm totally convinced and I think that's 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 the hottest thing you can invent mm. obviously very interesting and, and you obviously mentioned Elon Musk a lot and you know the influencers who else do you that I suppose influenced your thinking over the last number of years who do you admire who, who kind of inspires you um, I think Elon is pretty high up there because he's also, I think the magic with Elon is 
not just his skill set, because other people have also great skill sets and built great things, but his character and how he communicates and how much rage he generates in the establishment, I think, on Wall Street and everything. So I think that's especially compelling. And that he goes, you know, against Boeing and these people. But I mean, I'm more, I, I don't like to be fixated on individual people that I idolize too much. I think I'm European, right? So I grew up in Germany and I have my appreciation for Europe, but I have a very deep appreciation for American culture because like for people and it's because there are so many people that worked with me on Quantine, that invested in Quantine, that helped me raise money, that connected me to people, that talked to us at the university level, our clinical collaborators. So it's more that I admire some more diffuse, you know, innovation spirit or pioneer spirit that I find, in, especially in America, but you still find in Europe too, of course. And it's, no one is perfect. I mean, Elon isn't perfect for many reasons, but, um, Every time I meet someone, and also what you're doing, I mean, I always have this admiration for anyone who does something that tries to, you know, put a little puzzle piece into this greater, greater purpose that I see. And this greater purpose is like the pioneer civilization. And that these podcasts, for example, someone has also built the culture for it and spread the word and get ideas and combine ideas. So it's not that I pick any specific guy. It's it's more like Elon is a very iconic, you know, he, he I think he inspires a lot of people because it's this culmination of all kinds of things. But I draw my energy and inspiration more from every single person I meet where I think, wow, this person didn't just do what he was told to do. He, you know, took a little step and said, I can make a difference in the right direction, which means making people more daring, more pioneering and create this can do spirit and you know create disruptive innovation or help them do it hmm. it seems like you're more focused on the ideas as opposed to the person behind the ideas maybe in some ways that kind of lights you up a bit more yeah i mean yeah i don't like personality cults too much because i think they distract and it's like a greater much greater idea than any individual because if you bet everything on an individual individuals make stupid mistakes at some point or disappoint you right or just fail or something if you bet everything on that person and he whatever does something stupid it, it lets you down too much so i rather pick i mean people are very important to me but it's important like yeah each person delivers a piece of that magic um but the magic itself is kind of beyond the uh, individuals hmm. When you when you have had mistakes or failures, do you have an approach or a process of how you unpick it and learn from that? Um, well, I would say I have. I think that's a strength and a weakness at the same time. I'm not very. I'm not very good in like celebrating victories, and the other side of the coin is I'm also have no problems with errors or mistakes. So I'm like. I think my strategy is more to minimize the amplitude in both directions emotionally. So it's more, maybe it's a German thing. Um, I like to just be this little machine and say, like, this needs to be done. It doesn't matter if it's a success or failure. It's just part of the process. Do it, get the information and continue. And so this way, 
you know, mistakes don't don't bring you down too much. Um, unless it's a, well, there are errors or failures, and then there are mistakes. I don't like mistakes, because mistakes are unnecessary problems. Whereas failures are totally normal. It's like, okay, if I do this, of course, I'm going to fail at some point with something. Well, to, to, to put it differently, failures are for me not a big problem because if I do something, I expect a very long series of failures. And that always happens. So therefore, I'm not very disappointed. It's like, yeah, of course. I mean, if you, <laughs> if you run these algorithms, of course, they're going to fail. But at some point, you're going to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a culture, though, in different parts of the world has a different approach towards failure you might get rewarded for failure but it's it's ultimately getting you closer to the solution whereas in other places you could be looked upon uh negatively for failing but i, I think that's changing from the from the conversations i'm having with people from the the views that i'm beginning to detect seems to be changing a little bit it seems like you're extremely motivated you're very focused and um planful i would imagine how do you how do you balance that with just switching off? What what are your approaches to kind of having a bit of a work life balance? Is there is there one in there? <laughs> um, that's definitely not a strength of mine, to be honest. Um, yeah, that's always a problem. So, <laughs> I mean, normally I switch off by working at different things. So I'm working at on Quanchin, but I'm also working on my whole the Pioneer Society thing, which is more an intellectual exercise. But also we're building, you know, the Pioneer Academy where we can basically, you know, have a conversation with people and train people. So we are going to launch something probably soon, hopefully. So that actually works, right? So if I would think about Quanchin 24/7, at some point it becomes ineffective. So even though it sounds maybe a little mad, but I'm for me, the main the main measurement is not work by life balance. It's it's overall output and effectiveness. And I know if I only focus on one thing, you have decreasing you know marginal returns. It just becomes less efficient because you don't have ideas anymore. And the way to avoid that is if you work at multiple things in parallel, you can switch between these things. And I mean the social thing. Yeah, I mean, there are def definitely like deficits in my life, especially because I moved too much. Uh, so now I'm in Los Angeles. I think here we are going to settle here a little bit. Um, and there's definitely a sacrifice on that front. Like when we talk about dating and girlfriends and all these things, it's not something that comes very easy if you constantly move and do crazy things. And that's not a great thing. Uh, so I'm trying to improve on that front. No, it's interesting though. I, I take your, I, I see it. Maybe you're not at the same level as you, but uh, I would get my partner would at this point know not to kind of question me, but saying like, "Do you ever switch off?" But by me doing this podcast is a strange sort of way of of getting energy from from it. It's not relaxing. It's enjoyable, but uh, it's because it's not sitting down on a couch and just watching TV. It doesn't mean that you know you can't um, relax. So no, I I totally totally understand where you're coming from there. The, the medicine you're kind of looking to, to create or the precision medicine is very much um obviously bounded in in data analytics and whatnot what's your what's your perspective on you know western medicines versus eastern medicines any anything come up for you there um yeah i think that also goes deeper into our our idea and perception of science 
uh, and what it is. And that there is a certain ignorance combined with arrogance when it comes to thinking about our own science, which I think is very dangerous. Uh, like the people who understand science least in the scientific community are always insisting most on being scientific, which is bad. So um, I think there's this misunderstanding that science means that everything has to be explained through scientifically proven concepts. I just say like, oh, whatever, acupuncture is stupid because, you know, there is no Western scientific concept that explains how it works. Um, and I think that's just a fundamental misunderstanding of science. It's just fundamentally stupid. Science is the opposite. Science means you have to be absolutely open. You have to be facts and, you know, empirical evidence driven. And then you have to develop new theories, not take old theories and try to fit reality into them. That's not, that's what economics does. That's why it sucks so much. So real science starts with observation and then continues with imagination and theory building and then continues uh, with creating evidence or looking for evidence or falsification of these theories. So it's a very creative process and it needs to always start and end in evidence. So Eastern medicine, it would be all about the, the evidence that like, can you show that certain things work and you actually can. And, you know, then it goes into the other big question in medicine, specifically these clinical studies and the giant problem around them. What I really don't like about clinical studies also in cancer is that they are so expensive, which means it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong, or if you have evidence or a cure or something or a great theory, what matters is do you have money? Because if you have money, you can do your trials. If you don't have money, you cannot do your trials. And so you will never have evidence and people will always say you are unscientific. So if you want to show whatever keto or some diet or nutrition thing, you know, the only way to do studies on that is population-wide studies where you say, oh, after 20 years, these people ate more apples, but it's all completely self-reported and unreliable. A real study, take cancer patients, give them a certain diet or do certain alternative treatments on them. No one can afford these studies. That's the problem, right? You never see a study, oh, we, we took 1,000 colorectal cancer patients and gave them this and this diet. results. You never see that study because... You know, you see study, oh, we had five patients and they did that and this happens. And then everyone says, well, that's insufficient evidence. So the only people with the money is, of course, big pharma and they can do it or big diagnostics sometimes. And I think that's a little problematic. So I wish we would have more systematic science and make it easier to do it uh, so we can actually do real unbiased research of people who are truly interested in keeping people healthy instead of being selling a product. Okay, so there's, you would imagine there's probably a lot of brilliant medicines or solutions to diseases out there, for example, but they're just not getting the funding to, to do the potential um, clinical trials that, that would prove it. Would that be fair to say, do you think? Yes, and there's another perverse problem, and that is even if you have, let's say you find out baking soda cures cancer or something, right? I'm not saying that's the case. I think it's not the case. But, um, just assume you find any kind of normal stuff that if given in a certain dose in a certain way, combined with another normal thing, decreases, you know, or, or cures metastatic cancer in like 15% of patients. So the problem is, but 
in order to prove that sufficiently for the FDA, you need, you know, whatever, $10 million for a study or probably 50 million, whatever. So who's going to give you the 50 million? Right? How do you raise money for that? And the answer is you can't because the stuff cannot be sold for a lot of money. You can't suddenly amp up the price for baking soda by like 10 million percent because how? I mean, it's just available everywhere. So it is a big problem, I think, that the business models today in pharma require you to have a product that is defensible and that is very expensive. If you don't have that, you don't have a business case, you can never raise the money. Which I understand as a capitalist and economist, yeah, of why should I give you 50 million if I'm guaranteed to lose it all? Because either so it doesn't, if it works, I lose it all. If it doesn't, I will lose it all. So why is that an investment case? And it sounds like terrible, and you think, but people should be better than that. And they think about other people, it's like, but that's not how capitalism works. If you want money. So I think that's a little bit of a problem. It's a business model problem. You and, and I'm really in that field, so I see it every day. You need a plan how to make the money back. And if you find something that's just, I know, I don't know, like if you eat two apples a day, you decrease something or you defeat some cancer, it's not gonna, no one is gonna fund you. Mm. I, I hear you. So, would you consider yourself a leader? A leader. And if so, what, what, what makes a good leader? I mean, I think, well, maybe I don't, you know, the, the, the reason why I'm a little hesitant is that I don't like people who want to be led. So that's, you know, makes a bad leader probably because the leader needs to be led. But let's say, um, I think I consider myself someone who takes the initiative and tries to do something and tries to motivate other people to also do something. I, I see that this works to some extent. Um, and I think what makes a good leader should be, uh, there, there is this, I think it's very important to inspire people to some extent to show why it's worth doing something, not what needs to be done, but why it's worth doing it. And so you have to paint to some extent, some kind of vision or future that is exciting and compelling. So that's one element. And I think the other element of course, is you have to, I think you have to lead or inspire by example. And there's no way around that. I think everything else might sometimes work, but it's not good. Like you have to represent what you, if you preach, some kind of new world thing or vision, you have to be part of that already. You have to represent that new thing. Otherwise you are like fake. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I just threw it in there. Just interesting as you're kind of talking through it. It's a question I, I've asked a lot of people about leadership traits and and see similar patterns com coming up out of it. Maybe one or two final ones, Joe, are coming up on an hour. Um, the uh, how, how do you approach goal setting and how you know to get things done? Do you have uh, a go to plan or just interesting to see your perspective on how you get to outcomes? How do you get to results? What what sort of methods do you use? Oh, I think that's a very that's a very um, that's a very difficult question. Because 
it, from the outside, it looks a little chaotic sometimes. So I'm extremely goal focused, right? I know what we need, but you have to be very cautious about planning. That's one of my favorite topics. I'm very first principles driven. You have to exactly know what you, where you have a high level of certainty that you're right. And you have to know when you don't. And so, for example, if we say, you know, I know for sure in order to launch our product, we need a clinical study and this clinical study needs to have good results. To have good results, we need to do everything we can on the technology side to make it happen. That's kind of the big picture goal and plan. And then within these kind of strategic objectives, make the technology work and then make the clinical trial work and get enough samples in and get enough collaborators in. Um, you have to be extremely flexible all the time. And I think that's, that's why I might not be on the same page with other people. I really am critical of planning. I think planning is very dangerous because what if you have to change it, right? So you have to, in a way, you, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about like, what do we have to achieve? Uh, where are we at right now? What new information do we have? And then replan it. So it's, it's really not a fixed plan. It's, it's agile. It's but, and then stick to them, but you have to be very cautious not to plan things you cannot plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my background is project management and, you know, we would have done a lot of waterfall type project planning, which are quite in nine months time, we're going to have our big bang release of X, Y and Z. But obviously, as the world is changing, we're a bit more iterative and a bit more agile and shorter, shorter time frames, And, and that seems to be... Um, in certain in certain product development worlds, that's definitely a little bit more uh, acceptable these days. So it sounds like you're you're in that space um, a little bit as well. Yeah, and I, one of my favorite metaphors. I don't want to be too militant here, but one of my favorite metaphors is always war and Navy SEALs, like elite forces, because that's how you have to operate and how you have to plan. You plan everything excessively. Before you start, but you're aware at the first second you are in the mission, everything is going to change and you have to react fast and you have to be able to change your entire plan very like on the spot. So I think that's very important, but that doesn't mean you have to be a moron. <laughs> you have to be very smart in how you do it. You, and the, you know, then you have to ask these questions like, how do you understand? It's very similar. It's like basically you have five guys and they are in enemy territory they have to blow up a power plant or something that's their mission but you know there is a huge number of unknowns and they can even abort the mission sometimes that's the right thing to do mm. what changed the entire path so, so i think that's a much better paradigm than waterfall planning and uh for for volkswagen or something mm. because that's not how the world works anymore in my opinion yeah definitely so let's just wrap it up just looking into the future talking about planning is probably a bad question to end on because we don't want to look too far ahead but but what, what's in the very near term for for you and for quant gene and and maybe how people can learn a little bit more about it um well we have i think we made tremendous progress uh it was very interesting the last three years and we are now likely to actually have something that you know will change people's lives um, people who are concerned about cancer um, and want to do something about it. And, you know, very short term, I think this year probably we will have something available at least in the U.S., maybe starting in California, but we have to see, but probably all over the U.S. 
um, we'll be very selective. So it's very helpful when people approach us because we won't do like a giant marketing campaign around it. We will take this step by step, aim at a select, you know, a uh, smaller number of customers and physicians who really are cutting edge and want to be part of this. Um, but we are, of course, open to anyone who's interested. So we, we do it a little bit more. We have good networks and people normally get it very quickly. So we, because there's so many things to fine tune, we don't do a big national launch. We just say, well, it's available. We build kind of our little tribe of people who are the most concerned and also most sophisticated about genomics, cancer detection, who have smart doctors too, and work with them and do this the first year. And then we scale it up um, year after year. That's kind of the plan. So anyone who's really concerned about things or is into this, into genomics and cutting edge medicine, uh, should definitely follow us, you know, go on our website, write me an email. Uh, it's all on the website, um, jb at if they want to know. Um, and our approach will be pretty much because it's so innovative, the entire cell-free DNA and early detection field, that it's important to work with the best oncologists and a handful of the best primary care physicians, a little bit more than a handful. Uh, and patients, you know, who are really engaged in this field to, for, for the initial rollout. That's kind of our strategy. Hmm. And if just, just maybe talk me through very briefly, like if somebody wants to get tested, is just talk me through the process of how, how somebody's tested or, or how it might actually go from testing to diagnosis. It's very straightforward. You go to your doctor, so it will be doctor-driven for now for regulatory reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, the physician needs to be involved. And it's a blood draw, very simple, 10 milliliter blood draw, takes a second. Um, you can also do it together with your annual blood draw. Um, and then it's being shipped to our lab in Irvine. And turnaround time is probably five days, five to seven days. And you get a report back that your physician is going to interpret um, but the report is pretty straightforward. Do you, does, you know, the mutational landscape of your cell-free DNA match in any way that of a cancer patient or of an early stage cancer patient or of a pre-cancerous uh, patient? And if that's the case, um, there is a set of procedures in place that we developed with the best oncologists here and, you know, multiple centers here um, that tells you what to do next. So it's not a confirmatory test, of course. Uh, it's something where it's like, oh, you're in a high-risk bucket, you should get a colonoscopy or you should get, you know, a CT scan, whatever it is. So there are guidelines for each cancer. Um, and if, if everything is okay, you have a much higher chance that actually everything is okay. So that's how, you know, the whole thing works. And the key is that it's single molecule precision. So it's an extremely high precision that allows you to stay on top of cancer. That's the whole idea. Yeah, to do intercept it so early that even if there is something is probably going to be precancerous, then you can be tracked or if it's very early stage, it can be operatively like surgically removed. Um, and that's the main message. The whole point is to reduce the fear of cancer by being so on top of it that the probability it, that it um, slips through the cracks becomes very small. And that means you will be detected with a much higher probability at a very early stage, which means, you know, you have 99, 95% cure rates at that, at that level, at that stage. Hmm. Cool. Do you see yourselves working closely with like the likes of, I don't know, Ancestry.com or 23andMe? And is there kind of overlaps? Is there relationships there? There's a surprisingly little overlap, actually, because 
what they do, even though it sounds very similar, it's actually very different. Okay. You know, because they look at your healthy DNA, it's much easier to do, and then it's hereditary. So we are not looking for a risk uh, or probabilities of cancer. We look for cancer. That's why it's so much more advanced and more difficult to do. We we basically tell people, well, it looks like you currently have early stage cancer, which is very different from saying you have a 20% increased lifetime risk because who the hell knows what that means? Like it's very not actionable. Right. And uh, we also use blood samples. That's why we need to use blood. Whereas 23andMe, it's, it's all like swaps. So it's, yeah. it's a different, so we can't really partner with them because they do something different. Um, it's more comparable to your annual blood works. Um, what other protein-based tests, only that it's much more comprehensive and very different tech. Okay. Very good. Joe, look, thanks so much for giving us the run-through of QuantGene, but also of you and learning about, about you. I'm fascinated to see where you will go. Um, I think there's definitely comparisons to Elon Musk there from from listening to you in lots of ways and and you know your your uh, thought processes and um ideas are are fascinating so um looking forward to tracking your journey and hopefully with Quantine it all works out really positively as well thanks for taking the time out yeah thank you so much and also thanks for doing the 1% podcast i think it's a it's a great thing and we need these things thank you please spread the word in uh, silicon valley i'm happy to come over and do some in-person interviews in the future <laughs> if needs yeah, be you're always invited but if you come to l8 let me know i can give you a tour of the lab and uh, you're always welcome here brilliant thanks so much joe have a great uh, rest of day in santa monica take care take care thanks a lot Rob. thanks hey guys just before you go i'd love to hear from you if anything specific stood out from that episode something you might take away and try and implement in your own personal or professional life to help make you that little bit better on the other side is there anything you think i could do better to make the show even more enjoyable more impactful and maybe meaningful so drop me a note rob at rob of the green.ie or connect in on any of the social platforms at rob of the green we also have a community on facebook check that out if you're really enjoying the show maybe you could try and leave a rating or a review on itunes apple podcasts app Go in there, give us a rating, let us know how we're doing. That'll help with the ranking of the podcast, up those charts. The more folks that potentially see it because we're high up, the better. The more that might listen, that never heard of it before. And the goal of the show is to try and reach more and more people and have that impact more and more. So that's down to you. Please do help me with that. I'm not going down the route of hiring podcast promoters, quote unquote, from other parts of the world because they say they can help with the ranking and I don't really believe them or it's not very authentic. Help me do it in an authentic way. I'd really appreciate it. This year, I'm going more all in on Patreon. So it's three bucks a month. You can sign up, subscribe to Rob of the Green on Patreon.com. That will give you access to Patreon-only content. Nearly all the episodes of the 864 podcast are on there and new ones will be added only there. The 1% Better Show will have early releases there, but will still come out for free on robofthegreen.ie. There'll also be live shows this year, some phone-in shows, extra content, three euros a month. Will hopefully, the more folks that subscribe, allow me to do more and more stuff on there, add more and more content. At the end of the day, that's the price of a pair of socks, maybe, that you might lose, or a coffee. One way or the other, it's up to you. If you want to join, you'll see 
still get free stuff otherwise but if you're enjoying what we're doing help us grow help us expand it i'd really appreciate that adding new stuff onto the website all the time there's an affiliates page under the be better drop down check in there there's training courses that you can sign up to more and more stuff will come in over time into season three now of this fun fun journey huge learning hopefully you're getting something from it too stick with it let's keep going enjoy the journey even more have a great day week weekend and thanks for checking it out good luck